at one level, it's not necessarily a bad thing for that information to be out. If it's all compliance-driven, doesn't strike me as something you should be worried about. Now, the more that the remedial activity is specifically driven by the facts of the investigation, I can see the importance of, I don't know about maintaining a wall, Tom, but just making sure that the remediation justification doesn't get too far ahead of the disclosures. So even after a decision to disclose, if the investigation is still open, you have to strike a balance where you don't want to necessarily wait to remediate particularly deficiencies in procedures or policies too long, but you also don't want to get out ahead and put on like the corporate TV screen, Joe did something bad before you've really concluded that or before Joe knows that or before the government knows that. Welcome to the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practice Group's podcast, All Things Investigations. The Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practices Group represents many of the premier companies around the world, providing advice on issues spanning the full anti-corruption and compliance spectrum. In this podcast, host Tom Fox and members of the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Practice Group will highlight some of the key legal issues involved in white collar and other investigations, both domestically and internationally. We will tackle topical issues involved in investigations, as well as explore how companies can prevent and detect issues that arise in conducting investigations on a worldwide basis. I'm Fox back with another episode of All Things Investigations. Today, I have Mike Hunnicky with me again. Mike, first of all, welcome back. It's great to be back, Tom. Good to see you. Today, we are going to fully geek out because we're going to go over the order issued by the magistrate in the U.S. versus Coburn and Schwartz case around the document dispute that has been going on and is currently still going on in this case, this is the Cognizant Technologies former executives who are under criminal indictment for their alleged bribery and corruption in this case. And as Mike and I shared, this is a masterclass in federal criminal procedure. I'm going to extend it to civil procedure as well on documents, document production, the objections you can make, and how a court might think through these. So, Mike, I think I have that introduction correct. If you want to add anything before we take a deep dive and fully geek out into this, what do you think? I think you've got it right, Tom. I'll just add it's fun to be back to geek out with you on this topic that we really visited in our very first podcast as part of the All Things Investigations podcast series. And we've got a live one here. This is one of those rare cases where People are putting the government to its burden of proof. As we've talked about before, it's not surprising that individuals who face jail time might choose to do this and might choose to do everything possible. The opinion that we'll talk about is really a privilege primer that goes through every aspect of how privilege may impact an internal investigation. And Mike, for those compliance professionals who may have started listening to us, hang in there because there's actually some really important information around compliance programs the nuts and bolts of building out policies and procedures, risk assessments, and your overall compliance program and their discoverability. So really lots to digest in this case. 
Could you maybe set the stage for us and then go into the three categories that Magistrate talked about? Happy to, Tom. Appropriately, a recent decision by the district court on July 20th has gotten a lot of attention. In that case, the court was faced with allegations by the defendants that basically because Cognizant was following DOJ guidance, its investigation was somehow done at the direction or control of the government. And that hearing that led to the July 20th opinion was really about, well, did that mean that the defendants' interviews were compelled against their constitutional rights and that the results of those interviews had to be suppressed in this trial. Going along in parallel to that was really this undercurrent of a privilege dispute that going back to earlier this year, the judge had referred to a magistrate judge in the district court for New Jersey. And on August 18th, well, we didn't get it right away. The judge issued his report and recommendation that was unsealed August 30th at the request and agreement of the parties. And so in this report and recommendation, the magistrate carefully parses through a lot of requests and a lot of issues, one by one by one. It reminds me, Tom, of a project, really my first project as a pre-barred summer intern almost 20 years ago, where they assigned me with the task of doing a U.S. Courts of Appeal survey of waiver. You'll remember, well, this was at the time when the DOJ was allowing corporations to receive cooperation credit for waiving the privilege. And so there was a view that privilege was in peril, and this was an attack on the attorney-client privilege. I remember going through many of the cases the magistrate cites here, the Westinghouse case in the Third Circuit that roundly rejected the idea of a selective waiver, selective being which you choose one party to waive to, but you don't waive to others. Talking about partial waivers, what does that mean? It means, well, waiving a little bit of a discussion, but not going through the whole discussion in a way that may be disadvantageous to the other party. And the famous, maybe pipe dream of defense lawyers everywhere, the diversified industries case from back in the 70s and the Eighth Circuit, which I think is still the only case that recognized that a corporation could selectively waive to the government without waiving privileges to others. Before we get started, I have to give a shout out to everyone's first project. Because <laughs> the way you phrase that, it's stuck with you forever. Yes. I can still remember my first project when I went to the corporate world. I was with an oilfield service company and I was required to review, still remember the numbers, 214 agent agreements and 87 joint venture agreements. I guess the reason for those reviews, but that has stuck with me as well. And I can still recall some of those details just as you did. So for all of you lawyers out there, that first project will be memorable and it will stick with you and never shy away from a major research project. As Mike just explained, he can still cite a case from the 70s that's relevant today. And although I don't have to cite those JVs or agent agreements, I got to read some great contracts and that has stuck with me. So shout out to you having to do that for your first project. Mike, the court divided this into three categories. And when you said numerous documents, I think I counted in the three categories about eight to 10,000 documents that were covered. So the first one, category one was documents and communications for which the privilege log showed no privilege had ever attached. Category two was documents concerned 
those which the defendants asserted cognizant disclose the pertinent subject subject matter to the government in the course of the cooperating and thereby waive the privilege. And number three was documents which demonstrated the active assistance and cooperation by cognizant in the government's internal investigation. So we maybe keep with at least the court's delineation and kind of go through it. And what did you glean from each of those? Well, Tom, one common thread through all three categories, at least in the rulings from the magistrate judge or the recommended rulings from the magistrate judges to all three, was the importance of this being in a criminal proceeding. Time and again, the magistrate looks to federal rule of criminal procedure 17. And as that's articulated, at least in the Third Circuit and in the District Court of New Jersey, even if there is a waiver, that doesn't mean documents automatically have to be produced to the other party. A party requesting those documents must still show the evidentiary nature of those materials. It must request them with appropriate specificity, so no speculation, no guessing when you do this. And it has to demonstrate the relevancy of these. Now, there's a lot of overlap between some of those elements there, but it's not just anything and everything. So even if there is a waiver because of, say, your company cooperating with the government, it's not automatic that the waiver will be as broad or that the production will be as broad as the waiver in the criminal trial. So in the first category, Tom, documents that, as the defendants characterized them, were never privileged in the first place. The court really walks through a lot of the standard kind of fair. What does it take for privilege to attach? You know, the attorney actually, as we said in the first episode, has to actually do something as you know, the official legal standard, right? Just because an attorney's copied doesn't mean that the conversation is privileged. And so it's very important if you are looking to maintain the privilege that you actually ask your lawyers to do something, whether they're in-house or external. We like answering questions rather than assume that the lawyer knows there's a question or that someone reviewing the document 15 years later will know there's a question, it's good to ask the lawyer the question, even if it seems a bit stilted or formalistic in the email. Another key principle in this first set is that just because you attach documents and send them in an email to the lawyer, it doesn't mean that those documents are privileged for all purposes and for all time. They're still corporate records, and if they're responsive to discovery requests, the documents themselves could be producible. Now, the fact that you gave them to the lawyer and certainly what the lawyer says for them or the fact that the lawyer asked for them, all of those things might be very appropriately privileged. But you don't get to kind of stick things to the back of an email and have them disappear into the night. So in a lot of these document questions that came up in the first category, I think the master was sympathetic to the waiver argument or to the non-privileged argument. It really came back to Rule 17 and said, look, a lot of these things are just not really relevant to these proceedings here. One last point on that, Tom, is that it's another reminder that the common interest doctrine is very, very, very fragile and very, very, very narrow. A lot of times it feels good, it feels friendly to declare common interest, to talk on a phone call or a team's call about common interest. The courts don't like it at all. Already the privilege is narrow, and then you're trying to get it, uh, extend the privilege in another way that's arguing that parties have these shared interests. If you want to try to do it, this is a reminder, it's got to be very well documented, and there actually has to be a very common interest. In this particular case, one of the defenses that Cognizant raised against producing certain communications involving its subcontractor in India through whom the bribes were paid, allegedly, 
was that, well, we shared a common interest in trying to get this project in India off the ground. And the court, the magistrate judge quickly dismissed that as even if there were at some point some shared interest associated cooperating with the U.S. government in an investigation, you don't have a common interest with the subcontractor through whom the bribes were paid anymore. What's interesting, the magistrate didn't kind of tie this together at this point, but the first thing the DOJ did, at least from the record in the file here, is they went and interviewed these people in India in February of 2017. So just further evidence that there's not a common interest there. The second category, Tom, is really arguing that production should be as extensive as the waiver. And for the people listening and your audience in particular, here the defendants were saying, well, we were big fans of the FCPA compliance program. We were huge fans of the code of conduct. We were instrumental in its implementation. And I'm paraphrasing probably unfairly here. But the court said, well, arguably there was a waiver as to this. But going back to federal rule of criminal procedure 17, it's not really that important to where we are now. There's already information about the program, how that program was relevant to the government is part of the file. We don't need to bring in the nuts and bolts of the program itself writ large. And I think that's good news. You never really want to see how the program sausage is being made. And I think compliance professionals can rest assured that this is not an instance that will be cited back to them where they have to reveal all the nuts and bolts of how the program was designed, what choices were made about the scope of the program, and how it was implemented or not. So I think there's good news for the audience on that one. Could you explain to our audience who may not know, why is a magistrate judge making this ruling as opposed to a district judge? And what's the role of a magistrate judge in any case? Well, you could say that the district judge looked at how complex this was going to be and just decided to pass it off to somebody else. But it's very common for district court judges to assign certain tasks to a magistrate so the magistrate can perform them in parallel with other things that are going on, whether the district court judge's schedule is busy or just if there's other trial motions and other things going on here. Anything I say is speculation about what was in Judge McNulty's mind, but you can see with all the, the Brady issues, Garrity issues that led to the July 20th opinion, it was important in order to keep the trial reasonably scheduled and reasonably on track, I think, that the magistrate took on this big discovery load. Uh, it's very common for magistrates in particular to deal with discovery issues and discovery disputes. And so I think back in February, the judge issued an order saying, here's the broad parameters of the waiver I think happened. It was a very broad interpretation of the waiver. And then this was referred to the magistrate to work with the parties to really iron out, well, what does this mean in terms, as you said, that 8,000 or so documents that appear to be an issue here. The magistrate oh. issues the report and then the judge still has to approve it. So the magistrate's not an Article Three judge. But I think in this case, neither party has subjected to the report and recommendations and it was unsealed. One of the interesting subtle portions of this ruling was the court declining a full in-camera review of all documents. And I had always, now erroneously it appears, thought well, you just turned over everything to the court. And sometimes that was thousands of documents. And the court said, no, it's not always appropriate. Could you maybe speak to that tactic if it was a tactic? Tom, I had the same kind of reaction as you did. It usually, oh, okay, well, look, if there's a dispute, the court will look at it in camera. We advise clients, you need to be prepared for the court to review things in camera. And 
sometimes the court can't unknow what's in their head from that in-camera review. Here, the court cited a lot of precedent that it was interesting to me that the courts don't like to be in the business, particularly in the last, say, 10, 20 years, in this age of e-discovery, of having to review tens or twenties, <laughs> hundreds of thousands of documents to decide whether they're privileged or not. And so you can see the magistrate crafted a very organized way to think about these, obviously driven by what categories of the defendants had identified, but really felt very comfortable kind of summarizing his view without looking necessarily at all of the documents. There were some documents that he did refer to specifically. And even in this category two, where generally speaking, even things that were waived, he didn't think should come in under rule 17. There were some very specific things that he thought were well-founded arguments for production, particularly related to kind of the mechanisms by which the bribe payment was justified and paid in this particular project. And in category two, once again, I was somewhat surprised. i had always thought that one waiver equaled all waiver, and that's not correct. What did the court craft under category two regarding at least a claim of waiver by cognizant in turning over documents? The way I look at it is that the court kind of dealt with it by saying, well, even if it were a broader waiver in a criminal proceeding, we don't have to actually order production of everything that was waived. So there's kind of a hierarchy of waivers, so to speak, that again, things that were arguably waived because the company had made broad representations to the Department of Justice about the scope of its program and the efficacy of its program, the court didn't require the production of all of those things, even if they might be waived. And then to your last point, the court didn't feel it needed to go through a blow-by-blow account then of all of these documents in camera to make that decision. Mike, I thought this category was also very significant because clearly there were documents cognizant turned over that did waive the privilege and that obviously was the investigative report, direct references in the report to supporting evidence or supporting documentation. That was all waived, appropriately so. But it turns out that not everything that turned up in the investigation was waived. And I was wondering if you could say a few words about really the breadth and scope of the court's rulings around when you turn over your report and supporting documentation and how that in many ways, can protect the company in a way that, once again, I didn't know was available to it. One area, Tom, where that played out like that is a question over counsel's notes of the actual briefings to the government itself. So that's kind of interesting because you would think, well, that's actually what at least counsel on the company thought was said to the government. I'm guessing the court felt that, well, that may very well include opinion work product about the significance of what was said, the reactions observed, things like that. So even while the documents that factually underlay those assertions to the government were considered waived, counsel's view of how the meeting went, what exactly counsel thought was said, those weren't waived. I also thought that it extended down to other information that counsel may have uncovered in the investigation but didn't make a part of the final report. And once again, I would have thought everything in the investigation would have been turned over, but that turned out not to be correct under this magistrate's ruling. What does that mean for a company, or maybe if I could even put it down to an outside counsel such as yourself and you, Subbert and Reed, who might be 
asked to investigate a similar matter. You're absolutely right, Tom. And this was maybe a unique case where because one of the now defendants was the former chief legal officer, he had unique visibility into the scope of the investigation, how the investigation was progressing. And it turns out he had some emails with him that he was able to cite as exhibits in arguing for why the production was insufficient because he had the emails, but they hadn't been produced back to him. A note in the opinion that Cognizant had tried to get the documents back from him unsuccessfully. So it's an important kind of thing for everyone to keep in the back of your mind that you need to think and anticipate, well, what might this person have? And have we really looked at what they might have about this? But he cited, for example, the former CLO, the fact that while the company had said that 100,000 and more documents were produced to the government, that this was not a document dump, that this was responsive to DOJ guidance, that it was important information. It was the, in some ways, the most important information and he hadn't gotten 100,000 documents back. And so it's another example where I think the magistrate judge turned again to rule 17 to just say, look, of course there's more to this. And of course there had to have been more documents reviewed than even the ones specifically underlying what was specifically told to the government. But the magistrate judge has declined, and let's presume the court will agree, that the defendants aren't entitled to all of those documents. And Mike, in category three, we had documents which were alleged to show cognizant cooperating at the behest of the government or moving their investigation at the behest of the government. And here, probably the biggest thing that struck me was not a document, but that actually the head of the FCPA unit, David Last, or then head of the FCPA, was called to testify. And so it really made me think that, once again, if I can use you as an example, you may not only have to defend your investigation, but you may have to defend the documents you did or didn't use in an investigation. And your opposition, at least in the investigative stage, government may have their own view of that and can present a series of, if not difficult questions, at least questions in front of a U.S. district judge. Does that change your role as an investigative counsel going forward? It certainly demonstrates the complexity of being a cooperating investigative counsel with the government. In many ways, the fact that it was complicated helped because it all helped in the context of the Brady and Garrity hearings to show that, well, not actually, Cognizant didn't do everything the DOJ wanted them to do. And some of David's last testimony was, while we didn't agree that necessarily we had received everything, we didn't necessarily know why they claimed privilege over some of the stuff, and we you know, asked them for it. So in a way, how you walk the line of meeting the expectations for cooperation, but maintaining independence from the government. And clearly, anytime you talk to government investigators, they are also worried about not being seen as directing what you do for this purpose. But it makes it very complicated to cooperate enough to get the settlements you want. And here they got a declination, at least from the DOJ, which is a great result. But also maintaining that independence about what you provide and how you do it, it really counsels against kind of a knee-jerk, let's just take everything and give everything over approach, which I think isn't really common anymore anyway, but it requires a lot of thought about what are we giving over? Why are we giving it over? And going back to our episode one, 
if you're going to say you're waiving something or something's going to be waived, before you do that, you also want to think about, well, do we really need to assert privilege over it? Because then if we do, and then we give it over, or we use it as the basis for presentations, we're going to have a potential waiver issue. I think we also said in episode one, no one ever wins. I said, you said argument with the DOJ, and that may be another important reminder here. You know, in category three time also, this is where reading the magistrate's opinion called back fond memories of diving into Westlaw 20 years ago. And this isn't a case where there was really a selective waiver argument. It was more in this category, a partial waiver argument, meaning that while you only told them half the story, you don't get to claim privilege over the stuff that would help the defendants while waiving the stuff that hurts them. And so specifically, you had Cognizant telling the government, uh, look at these guys, they're trying to shut down the investigation. The chief legal officer is complaining about duration and fees, which I think is legitimate and happens a lot in our world. But the government then was going to use those as exhibits in the trial. And I guess plans still to do that. The court and the magistrate judge held in this particular case that, well, this is almost a textbook partial waiver issue. You can't take some of the discussions that the CLO had with the investigative team and waive where it shows the CLO was doing less than promoting the investigation and keep out evidence where they agreed to have the investigation, supported the investigation, directed people to submit to interviews. They themselves sat for interviews. So all that stuff has to be produced, according to the magistrate judge. Yeah, it's the sword and shield argument. You can't have it both ways. Or one word, I remember that. I believe it was in this category that the issue of, I'm going to say the nuts and bolts of Cognizant's compliance program came up. This included policies and procedures. It included risk assessment. It included the monitoring of the results of how you managed your risk and any improvement, if any. In other words, how you would think through the design implementation, continuous improvement or upgrading of a compliance program. What did the court find about that part of Cognizant's work? They found that essentially, I think enough had been produced, right? It wasn't that there'd been no production of any kind of that material, that type of information. What was produced is kind of either produced to the government or what underlay specifically disclosures to the government, I think had been produced. The defendants really went for it all here and then wanted to show this isn't just this narrow period in time that's relevant to how we're thinking and how you should think about us. You should look at the whole thing. And the magistrate judge, again, looking at Rule 17 in criminal proceedings, said uh, it's just not relevant enough to the allegations at issue here. Like in sort of modern day FCP enforcement actions, you typically have a parallel effort in terms of remediation of your compliance program, if appropriate, and the investigation and negotiation directly with the government over a potential fine and penalty or a, a declination. Mm-hmm. The times I've been involved, I've always been on the remediation side, helping to build out the program. And the defense counsel were religious in trying to maintain complete separateness for us who are working on the compliance program. Do you think based upon this decision, that separateness, that Chinese wall has to be maintained or can companies that are remediating use information that's developed in the investigation to help fix or improve their compliance program? Well, Tom, I'm sure it's 
case by case to punt a little bit, but my reaction to that after this opinion is at one level, it's not necessarily a bad thing for that information to be out. If it's all compliance driven, doesn't strike me as something you should be worried about. Now, the more that the remedial activity is specifically driven by the facts of the investigation, I can see the importance of, I don't know about maintaining a wall, Tom, but just making sure that the remediation justification doesn't get too far ahead of the disclosures. So even after a decision to disclose, if the investigation is still open, you have to strike a balance where you don't want to necessarily wait to remediate particularly deficiencies in procedures or policies too long, but you also don't want to get out ahead and put on like the corporate TV screen, Joe did something bad before you've really concluded that or before Joe knows that, or before the government knows that. I understand that it may still be important to remain clear-headed about which is which, but you know, I don't think that from a privilege perspective, it needs to be so strict. What is interesting here is this shows you, at least in a criminal setting, again, coming back to Rule 17, Rule 17 can be a reason why other things that are not related to the core conducted issue wouldn't necessarily come in. So... The discussion in part three or in category three about other projects and whether just information about other projects and potential bribery allegations and other projects and how those were dealt with could come in or not. And the court said, now that's really too broad. But the caveat, and the court put it in its opinion, the government has previewed in a motion in Lemonade that they want at trial to introduce evidence that there was bribery presumably involving these defendants, or at least with their knowledge, or at least maybe with a high probability knowledge on their side, that they knew this. And the magistrate notes that, well, if that motion is granted, what is appropriate under Rule 17 will expand, and the district court should reconsider it at that time. Mike, as you recall, in January of this year, 2023, then Deputy Attorney, Assistant Attorney General Kenneth Polite announced changes to the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, what we used to call that. This was on the heels of the ABB FCPA settlement in late 2022. And there is apparently now a new category of cooperation, whether you call it double secret, extra ordinary cooperation or extra extra ordinary cooperation. Assistant Deputy Attorney General Polite defined it as We'll know it when we see it. Not very helpful. And they specifically talked about hot docs. And if you have a hot doc, find as something very critical, you pick up the phone and you call the DOJ. My concern with that was not that it was not a hot doc or not that you would call the DOJ, but it really related to some of your remarks about a careful, reasoned approach to evaluating a document, talking to your client about it, and then making the decision to turn it over as soon as possible. And this opinion was for facts which happened back in 2017, recognizing that the ABB case was settled much later. Has the calculus of someone like yourself, an outside counsel, changed because of this new category that Polite announced? And how do you deal with the need for speed, as I've heard it called? So, you know, Laura Perkins and I, I had a good time talking with you on this topic a while back, and my view still really is the same there, that I think you still need to take a moment, take a breath at least, to think about what you're seeing and what you're doing. Sure, they want the hot documents. 
I think if at the end of the day, like Cognizant has, you deliver the goods to them, so to speak, so that they can bring a criminal prosecution, we'll see the result will be interesting and we'll see what the result of this trial is. But I still think at the end of the day, they will feel that if they were able to bring a prosecution and you quickly prioritize what you gave to them here, presumably there was an emphasis on the particular project in India, even though there was an awareness of other things, maybe potentially other projects, I think you're still going to meet expectations. And certainly the declination that Cognizant received is consistent with the presumed view by DOJ that they had done a lot and done so promptly. For me, you know, I take Polite's remarks, but with also looking at the guidance that you need to be focused and quick in the investigation. And I still think if you have the right people helping you focus the investigation, who can help you really figure out quickly who within the business is likely going to have the most relevant information, and you at least jump on that stuff first. And then as Laura and I talked about, if you've made that decision to disclose, you keep them informed. Hey, here's what's happening. Here's where we are. Here's what we're doing. I think you're still going to meet those expectations. Now, if you're a once or twice recidivist company like ABB was, which is extraordinary mean, and depending on how you view the timing of ABB with the announcement or not, unfortunately, it shows what discretion the DOJ has. And if you're really asking for almost, I wouldn't call it a walk away or anything like that, but the most favorable resolution possible, it may depend on who you're talking to at DOJ and what they think of how you're doing and the relationship you're able to build with them. Mike, this has been a fascinating discussion of a fascinating opinion. And for the lawyers out there, I really hope you'll take the time to read the entire opinion because it really is a primer. Mm -hmm. Privilege, waiver of privilege, document production, and a host of issues that we rarely get sort of collected in one opinion that we can utilize. Thank you for taking the time to read it and wanting to podcast about it. <laughs> I look forward to continuing this conversation. Tom, I do think it has a lot of really interesting takeaways for people. And I may have been first in the line of one to do this podcast, but I hope people find it as entertaining as it's been to research and have it with you. Thanks a lot.